I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The FT. Hello and welcome back to FT Science with me, Clive Cookson. This week, we are at the annual British Science Festival, the country's biggest all-round scientific gathering. Since the early 19th century, the festival, known until recently as the annual meeting of the British Association for the Advancement of Science, has been touring Britain. This year, it's visiting Bradford for the first time since 1873 and offering a vast range of talks on subjects from astrophysics to zoology. I'm delighted to say that our regular studio guest in London, Diana Garnham, Chief Executive of the Science Council, has made it up to Yorkshire too. Hello, Diana. Hello, Clive. And our special guest is the astronomer Jocelyn Bell-Burnell, who is this year's president of the British Science Association, as the festival's sponsoring organisation is now known. Hello, Jocelyn. Hello, Clive. Now, you're about to deliver your presidential address, which has the romantic title of Astronomy and Poetry. Are you yourself a poet as well as an astronomer? No, I'm not a poet myself, but I do love the poetry. Have you been interested in poetry since a girl? No, it came quite late in life. How much of an intersection is there then between astronomy and poetry? How much poetry has been written about your subject? An amazing amount once you start collecting it. The last time I did a tally of what I have in my files, I looked at poetry written since 1950 because that's when astronomy boomed. And of poetry of that vintage, I have at least 150 poems. So it's big. Gosh, well, I'm afraid we don't have time to read 150 (laughs) or even 50. But can you select perhaps one or two poems that sum up perhaps particularly well what appeals about astronomy to poets? The one I want to read first is by Elizabeth Jennings, whom I hadn't heard of when I was introduced to her, but discovered she used to live in Oxford. She died a few years back, and now in Oxford there's a road named after her. It happened like this. I was doing a talk to some women of my own age about the vastness of the universe and how long it takes light to travel from even the nearest star to us here on Earth. And at the end, one of my friends said, do you know Elizabeth Jennings' delay? And I didn't. So she gave me a copy. And I thought, enjoyed that copy. Thought, hmm, wonder if there's more like this. So this is where my collection of poetry with an astronomical theme began, with delay. The radiance of that star that leans on me was shining years ago. The light that now glitters up there, my eye may never see. And so the time lag teases me with how love that loves now may not reach me until its first desire is spent. The star's impulse must wait for eyes to claim it beautiful. And love arrived 
may find us somewhere else. That certainly does show us very beautifully what light years really mean. Diana, what do you make of poetry and astronomy? I think it's really rather interesting because poets are very good at talking and describing feelings, I think, and mm. in a way that we can relate to. And what I rather like about astronomy, which I know very little about, is that it is about true wonder, about things that we don't fully understand. So I can see the link here about talking about the unknown. And sometimes poets use astronomical themes to help them address human issues like their own mortality. For example, Halley's Comet, a very famous comet, comes back every 76 years, and that's fairly well known. Poets notice comets, and I think they think every comet comes back every 76 years. And you find a number of poems along the theme of, I'm seeing this comet now, but next time it comes around, I won't be here, and other eyes will see it. I'll be gone. Are most of the poets pro-astronomy? Do they mostly love astronomy and the images they can provide through astronomy? Most of them, yes, and, and they seem to find the astronomy quite thought-provoking. But there are some that are disturbed. For instance, Patrick Dickinson, who wrote about 50 years ago, was clearly perturbed at the advance of science in general, not just astronomy, and the way he felt it was destroying myth. So he has a poem called Jodrell Bank, which I'll read. Who were they? What lonely men imposed on the fact of night, the fiction of the constellations, and made commensurable the distances between themselves, their loves, and their doubt of governments and nations? Who made the dark stable when light was not? Now we receive the blind codes of space beyond the span of our myths, and a long dead star may only echo how there are no loves nor gods men can invent to explain how lonely all men are. It's quite disturbing, that one, isn't it? But poets can be angry as well, I think. <laughs> it comes over quite condensed. What's nice for us is that it sets out in the science community you know, um, an understanding about how people do feel cut off from these things. And actually also scared by them. You know, I have some friends who don't like me talking about the immensity of the universe. They say it makes them feel too small. I know that you've probably chosen the title of your talk very carefully to try and bring the cultures together. I often get the feeling when I'm talking to young women that they're actually, the wonder of science is one of the exciting things about astronomy. Is that where you come at it from? It's certainly where I started from, yes. What really grabbed me as a teenager was the size and scale of the galaxies, even the stars, and how the physics I was learning in school could actually be used to explain some of all that, but not all. It's a very exciting subject. So, Jocelyn, and indeed Diana, beyond the wonderful world of poetry and astronomy, there's so much happening here at Bradford University it's unfair to ask you to pull out anything, but what can you say about the atmosphere of the festival, Jocelyn? I've been struck once again by the buzz of it all, just milling around in the atrium, which is kind of the focal point of everything here. How much is going on, how much people of all sorts are engaging. 
and I believe that at the weekend also there were lots and lots of kids and families, which is wonderful. Diana? I think what's striking for me is how ethnically diverse this audience is. So Matching know, the city of Bradford. It is, and it's good to see all the same buzz going on, but perhaps audiences that we're not that great as reach, at reaching in science. Are there any particular things that you're looking forward to seeing or doing here, any particular talks or subjects? Well, one of the uh, sections have picked up on this theme of science and culture, the math section, and Caroline Ceres, who is the president of that section, will be doing her presidential talk on Thursday afternoon. She'll be talking about patterns and mathematics, which I think will be fascinating. Absolutely. I'm actually looking forward to going to see adaptive optics in eye care because it's a very practical applied science area. You want to see better? I do, definitely. (laughs) Okay, Jocelyn, looking beyond the festival, there are so many issues in science from education to funding. What are you particularly concerned about, or indeed don't want to be negative, pleased about what's happening in, in science across the world and in the UK? One of the things that pleased me most was the way when we had a spending review, comprehensive spending review in Britain, science funding was not as seriously cut as other areas. Now, you can ask in detail what exactly that means, and it's not entirely good news. But I think it's a very good message to the populace in Britain that science is important, that the science funding has been kept high. And I'm pleased that we're beginning to see that in the way some students are choosing their A-levels and choosing university courses. It seems to me that science is on the up and it really does need to be because the future, the economic future of the country is a smart economy. When I was last month visiting CERN, the European High Energy Physics Centre, Rolf Hoyer, who runs CERN, was expressing concern that the funding of research was moving away from the most basic science, answering questions about the nature and future of the universe, towards quicker payoff, more Mm. applied science. Mm. Do, Do you share any of his worries about that? There certainly is a balance to be maintained. It's important that we have both this curiosity driven research, which will lead dear knows where, but is the seed corn for future applied research. That's kind of a long term thing. And alongside that, you have to have shorter term uh, development kind of work. Thanks very much. Now it's time for our monthly contribution from AAAS and Science Magazine. Over to Nadia Ramligan in Washington. Thanks, Clive. Male hummingbirds court females with showy acrobatic dives that are accompanied by loud songs produced by the bird's tail feathers. A new study breaks down the aerodynamics of these tail feather love songs and shows that sound is produced by air flowing past a tail feather, causing it to flutter like a flag in the breeze. I'm talking with Christopher Clark of Yale University, lead author of the study. Dr. Clark, could you describe what fluttering tail feathers sound like? The answer is that there's not a single answer to that because every feather that I tested sounded somewhat different. The tail feathers of the Anna's hummingbird, for example, vibrate at about 4 kilohertz. So when I put them in the, in the wind tunnel, they'll make sound continuously for, for minutes on end. So they sound like a that just goes on and on and on. But other feathers are much lower frequency than that, and still others are much higher, higher than, than I can go. 
You looked at the aerodynamics of moving tail feathers by placing feathers in a wind tunnel. Could you describe your experiment and what you found? So a wind tunnel is basically it's a large device. It's got a big fan on one end. It's got a big intake on the other. The entire intent is to get the air flowing as smoothly through a small box as possible. It's kind of like a treadmill except for air rather than removing ground. The feather is by itself in the air with all the air flowing uh, as smoothly past it as possible. And so the wind tunnel lets me match the speeds that the birds will go during their displays. Finally, what's the bigger picture? Well, the bigger picture, the one question is, why would these birds produce these sounds? Because if we look at these hummingbirds, they all have a perfectly good voice box. They all are able to produce vocalizations. So why would they evolve to also make sounds with their tail feathers? And one answer to this, I think, is just that, that these sounds arise incidentally as a part of flight. I mean, just like a person's footsteps, they're not intended for communication. It's just a byproduct of their walking. I think these sounds arise in birds the same way. The feathers are prone to flutter, and so they just happen to flutter time and time again. And so then for sexual selection, the real question here is, why would females pick up on this particular sound and select for males that produce these sounds? I think the answer is that they are, provide an indication of how the male can fly. So in the study that, that published, it, we show, for example, that the loudness of the sound increases the faster the male flies or the faster the air flows over the feather. And so it could be, for example, that females are using these sounds as an indication of how fast is a male flying. For AAAS, I'm Nadia Ramlagan. Back to you, Clive. Thanks, Nadia, and thanks to the AAAS and to science. Next week, we'll be back at the FT studio in London with more insights into the fascinating world of science. All that's left for me today is to thank the British Science Association for hosting this week's show and to thank Jocelyn Bell Burnell and Diana Garnham for joining me in Bradford. And thank you for listening. FT Science is produced by LJ Filatrani, and I'm Clive Cookson. Goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.